he's a homie. He is 100% homie. I would take Mike to a knife fight. Half of these AG folks, I'm like, you're not coming to the knife fight. Right, seriously. <laughs> Mike's too much of a pacifist. He wouldn't be any good in a knife fight. No, you need somebody to be a hype man in the knife fight. Like, get him on. Someone's right behind you. Right, Mike Mike would be the hype man in the, in the knife fight. I just want to let y'all know, I had quite a day, like, Quite a day. Yes. So I might cuss a little. We, we love Jesus, but we cuss a little. Welcome to the Barely Saved Podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. I'm Caleb. I'm Rebecca. I'm your locally organic kombucha brewer. You almost failed that, Mike. That was almost a fail. <laughs> that was almost as bad as last week. It's always so awkward. People just sometimes talk over each other. Well, that's that's the fun of it. Nobody ever knows who's going to say in what order. It just it all comes out. So we have with us this week two guests. You guys want to introduce yourself? We can start out with uh, whichever one of you wants. Maybe maybe on. Let's go with on. Let's do ladies first. Let's act like we're chivalrous. Let's pretend. Uh, hey, I'm on Johnson. I am an ordained Assemblies of God pastor, and Woo-hoo. I'm coming. I, I'm coming real spicy today for this uh, little podcast shindig. So zero dog marks are given as I talk about what we are talking about today. <laughs> on, if you were a pepper, what pepper would you be in spiciness today? And it kills you. Oh, okay. So, you know. Like the Carolina Reaper. No, 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 no. I'm I'm the kind that you're like, ooh, that's spicy, but I want more because it's been missing in my life. There we go. But like for the faint of heart, I hope it kills you. That kind of like thing. Do we want it to kill them or do we want it to put them like in a coma and then they can recover and come back to Jesus? Sometimes the greatest gift is to let people meet their maker. That's how spicy I am right now. That is how spicy I'm coming to this. It has been a day. I'm going to have that embroidered on a throw pillow. Um, Can we please put that on one of our t-shirts, Caleb? On Johnson. Sometimes the greatest gift is to help people meet their maker. I think, Brad, it's your turn now. Yeah, I'm Brad. Uh, I serve overseas. Uh, I am... uh, uh, Japanese American, uh, born and raised in the States, uh, now serving in Japan. Oh, snap. Should I have said I was Asian? <laughs> no. <laughs> I just thought it fit in with our discussion today. So, Brad, way to stay on topic. Uh, I am Vietnamese and I immigrated over here when I was about three. So, I'm an Asian oh, wow. American immigrant. Wow. I'm sitting in a different place than where I normally am. You are. You're on a couch? Uh, yeah. I'm, so I'm recording from the couch today because the dogs are here. And if I were downstairs, the dogs would not leave me alone. But if I'm sitting on the couch, the dogs will just chill out. Is that a ficus behind you? What is that plant? What is the tree? There's a whole bunch of trees back there. I don't know. But it's about 12 feet tall. People have fake trees in their house or is that a real tree? It's a real tree. Well, okay. Well, sorry. Our church still has lots of fake trees. So I just assume indoor trees are fake. Those are all real plants that were given to us after my dad passed away 11 years ago. 
So all oh, the plants behind feel me bad now. are like funeral plants, and they're all still alive. They're beautiful plants. The tree in my parents' house was left by my grandma when she got kicked out of her apartment and moved in with us for a while. And it literally probably weighed about 100 pounds, the whole pot and root system. And it was probably eight feet tall. And my parents still have it, even though she's moved to Arizona now. And I, I don't know why, because it, it doesn't fit in their house. And mom, if you're listening to this. Because it's too hard to move. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly why. <laughs> Let me turn this. I had to so carry it all by myself. It, oh man, it was, wow, that is a tree. I love I love indoor trees. I'm trying to figure out how to feel about Caleb's trees. Like they're funeral trees. That's I'll be honest though, like you I would rather somebody give me a plant than like a bouquet of flowers or a bag of meat sticks versus a bouquet of flowers. Right. It's definitely better. <laughs> give me Oreos and jerky over a bouquet of flowers. Like a basket of mango. Yeah. Yum. Okay, what's our did you know? Brad has it today. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I just put in the group chat uh, an article about, uh, it's an English article from a Japanese newspaper, since that's where I am here. And uh, this in the city of Osaka it, uh, has a zoo. And the zoo, they just had a brand new polar bear that was born. <laughs> and uh, if you scroll down in the link, oh my there's a video that you could see of the polar bear playing and, and then uh, nursing with his mom a little bit. It's absolutely amazing. The cutest thing you'll see all day. <laughs> wow. It's definitely the cutest thing I've seen all day. Yeah. Look at it. Oh, it's hopping. Can I just point out that Brad, that Brad sounded like he was like legit auditioning for the podcast and you can tell he's listened to it because he's like, I've linked, I've linked the article in the chat. Like you can tell that he knows like, that he's listened to it. And it's about bears. Yeah. And it is the cutest damn bear I have. Oh my gosh. It's so cute. Can we take a moment? Like, did you guys think that the polar bear would be just a, like a smidge whiter? <laughs> like I was just hoping that that polar bear was going to be like the AG, like just white. So I just want to know where we're landing on that. It's kind of like the AG though. It's got a little brown, just enough, but still got a little color. Just a smidge of Nobody else, nobody else saw that polar bear. I was like, mm, I thought it'd be more white. And then was like, like the AG, anybody? All right, that's cool. I remember being a smart ass in I think kindergarten or first grade uh, when my kinder my teacher was like, okay, we're going to like draw these pictures, whatever. And it was a polar bear. And I remember being like, why do I have to color in a, a white animal? And my teacher was like, oh no, you color in yellow. And I remember being like, but the but the Crap Brothers says it's a white bear. I don't know. <laughs> yes. uh, first grade teacher, I don't know what you're trying to teach me, but it's wrong. The Crap Brother said so. Yes, yes, the Wild Kratts. My, love, my kids love the Wild Kratts. <laughs> love the Wild Kratts. <laughs> wild Kratts schooling kids so they can school their teachers. Boom. I, I still did not, I didn't color in the polar bear. I think I highlighted the, the edges. To... You stood firm in your conviction. Good job, Mike. <laughs> First grade, Mike. Good job, Mike, from the past. I don't know. I, I like the bear. It's very cute. No one's debating whether or not it's cute. We're just saying we just... Like... Here's the thing. On, I have looked in the past since we've been doing this segment. 
I have looked at a lot of pictures of polar bears to decide whether or not I would use them as a news story. So I'm no longer surprised when I see a uh, non-white polar bear. Um, so it's actually more rare than when I see a lead pastor of an AG church that's not white. Um, I'm actually more surprised by that than what I am when I see a non-white polar bear. Yeah, stands to reason. We're not surprised. <laughs> that's what I'm concluding at. All right, that's cool. That's cool. It's true. It's very true. Um, so, Brad, was this like the first polar bear ever born there? Or... Um, didn't research that much to know for sure exactly what the whole story was. The video is in Japanese and I can probably understand it a little bit more than you guys, but not much more. So, uh, I don't know <laughs> other than what's written there in English. Uh, I, I can't really help too much with uh, any of the background stories. So, so Brad, Mike, so a question is uh, since you're, you're learning Japanese right now, yes. um, do you find that like people in Japan expect you to be able to speak better than you do? Like, do you, or have you and Ro, like, come up against that at all? Yeah, so being half Japanese come up with and maintained is that I continue to dress how I dressed in the States so that when people see me, they see me as white as I possibly can be so that they don't expect me to be Japanese, to act Japanese, and to speak Japanese. So when I do speak Japanese, it is a surprise to them, like in a positive way. But the strategy doesn't really work on the telephone. Oh. Yeah, I got a phone call the other day and this person was, they just started like talking 150 miles per hour in Japanese. I'm like, I couldn't even understand if you're speaking English, you know? Um, and then, so I asked them, I was like, can you slow down, please? Because I don't understand what you're saying. And they put me on hold and then like came back and like started jabbering again. And I'm like, I don't understand what's going on. You're like, you can't see that I look white. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> see my khakis. Like, what? Right. Eventually they uh, realized that they had called the wrong person. And that was all that I understood out of like a five minute conversation was like, oh, I messed up. I called the wrong person. I'm like, thanks for wasting my time. Oh, man. Yeah. But having a, a Japanese last name in uh, in the Japanese culture while being American is difficult. Um, it does create some expectations of who I am until they actually see me and and see who I am so on you were raising your hand earlier did you have something to say I was just wondering what does looking what does dressing white look like to other countries like you know like we have a perception like I'm like are you rocking like evangelical like like skinny jeans like you've got a deep v and like you look like you rolled out of bed but you took more time than like row to get ready are we talking about like that look or are we talking about like fanny pack like cargo shorts with Crocs and like high socks and like a white shirt sandals from Oregon. Yeah, like high just, white socks too. But, like that, but that was that's just really interesting though. The concept. I I don't know. I guess I'm unpacking like that concept of like looking white so that they would understand. Like, and then I'm trying to think like in the Japanese perception. Then like to the people you're meeting, how that shapes all interactions with you because now you fit into a stereotype for them. Yeah, so um, where we live, uh, so if you've got Japan kind of goes like this, Tokyo is here in the middle. 
And then um, we live kind of down here. This is great because the podcast won't have video. Yeah, I, it doesn't help anybody else. Yeah, but it helps us. This is like a phone call. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like a phone call for, for our audience here, our, our tens of listeners. Uh, anyhow, so we live in the southeast part of Japan, away from Tokyo. That's the biggest takeaway for everybody. I live away from Tokyo. Tokyo is much more modern, more Western, where we live. It's a big city. There are like three three million people live here. But we do, it's more conservative. And so people dress more traditional, more whatever. So I, I'm right now, I'm wearing a black polo shirt and blue jeans. That This is literally my uniform. Like I wear this every day. Um, I mean, not literally my uniform, but it's like literally what I wear every day. And uh, we actually don't see very many people wear blue jeans like at all. And so anytime I see someone wearing blue jeans, it's like, oh, they're probably a foreigner. Or if they do wear blue jeans, they're like super baggy, like really loose blue jeans. So like wow. mom jeans. Thank you for sharing that. We asked Brad and on to come on here um, a couple of weeks ago. We asked you guys to come on as there was, you know, it, as there has been an increase in violence against the AAPI community and people not even recognizing that it's a thing, let alone giving a damn about it happening. Mm -hmm. And so we, we invited you guys to come on before the events of last Tuesday. And so I just sort of, I don't know where I want to go with that, where, where we want to start with that conversation, but there's, there's some people that listen to this podcast, some number of them that haven't been part of those conversations that we've been having in, in ministers forums where we've been talking about the reality of this. And, and there's some people who, who might still be surprised that it's actually a thing. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm here to sort of throw it to you guys. What are, your, what are some of your experiences around that that you want to share? Or, or what are the things that you would like to say to those people who are totally unfamiliar that it's even a thing that's been happening this last year? On your fired up today, why don't you go first and uh, I'll come back. Um, it's difficult because it's so multifaceted and so multi-layered about why people know and they don't know and how they were processing this information. So there's just a lot of barriers in the way that are preventing people from actually understanding why what we are seeing is why we are what we are seeing. Like no Asian person is like surprised that this is happening, you know, and the massacre, cause I'm going to call that shit what it is. It was a massacre. And it was, it was, I don't care what the killer said. You're not going to trust a guy that just killed eight people when he's like, I was having a bad day. It's not racism. It wasn't race. It was my sex addiction says the guy who killed them. Like, really? Well, like, so like even that, like none of us are shocked, but we're being gaslit. Because mm -hmm. nobody wants to call it what it is because no one, not no one, I'm sorry, that's a really broad stroke, but like people are having a difficult time thinking of racism outside of the narrative of just between black and white people, yeah. right? And so that's challenging a worldview within itself. For a lot of Asians, it is like when everything happened last year with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Here's the thing, like no black person was shocked that this was going on. But I feel like for a lot of people, it was like a jarring, like, oh, holy shit, like this is happening. 
and we've like, this is a reality, but here's the thing. Like a lot of Asians didn't know how to engage in that conversation of what was happening because the narrative of all has, has primarily been between white and black people. And so now this is happening. We have a group of people who have never thought that Asian people experience racism. And that's due to the model minority myth and the monolith that is Asian people, Asian people are being awakened to recognizing like this is happening and like dealing with our own trauma and grief of like, this is happening and we are like calling our elders and we are checking in with people. And we're even examining our own experiences as myself, as an Asian American woman of experiencing racism, but also experiencing Asian like fetishization and also then like making sense of being sexualized as a woman in the church, which like, that's a lot to process. Yeah. And so like Brad and I got connected in an AG group because we're the Asian people are like, this has been happening. (laughs) Listen. And people are like, this isn't happening. So it just took eight people getting murdered. Six of them being Asian women for people to be like, Oh my gosh, this is happening. And then now we're seeing people like, well, it's definitely not racially motivated because he said it wasn't. And I'm like, cause he seems like a real good, like character, like has good, good judgment. Like this entire community is like, this is racism. This is misogyny. And you have white Christians being like, mm-mm, mm-mm. he said it wasn't. And I'm like, okay, that's like catching your kid with poop in their hands. And you're like, is that your poop? They're like, not my poop. Right. Like you're right. like, it is, it's in your hands. Like this is what it is. And so I would say like me and Brad connecting, it was because we have been saying this. Mm-hmm. We have been saying this in our movement we have been using our platforms to draw attention and it's heartbreaking. I don't, I can't speak for Brad, but it's heartbreaking for me that eight people had to die for somebody to give a shit that this is happening to my community, our community. Yeah. On, um, could you maybe just in case people don't know, um, like the, the model minority myth? Yeah. Um, the model minority myth is essentially like ascribed to Asian people to actually pit people of color against each other. So you could like in white supremacy and in that structure, it's like, we'll be like the Asians because the Asians have endured hardship, but they they make so much money. The Asians have endured stuff, but look how well they're doing to essentially, you know, divide and conquer between all the minority groups that you should be like them. And what's harmful about the model minority myth that we are all successful, that we're all rich, that we're all good at math, that we all do all this stuff is it it removes it removes our right to be human and to feel pain and to grieve and to not be successful and to not have money and to suck at math and to do all these things because people think well because you're an Asian you're the model minority and then what it also does is that it isolates an entire group of people because of a racist structure. And so the model minority myth is, this, or the model minority idea is that all Asians are successful. We're all rich. We have struggled too, but look how we have overcome. So yeah, I just want to jump in a little bit with what Anne was talking about with the George Floyd and events around Black Lives Matter and whatnot. I, I'm half. I'm half Asian. I think I mentioned that. I'm uh, my father is uh, Japanese. My mother is Caucasian. So I grew up with a foot in, in both worlds. 
And I identified very strongly with the Japanese side, but at the same time growing up, I never realized that I was a minority, that I was a person of color. And so there were a lot of times growing up, uh, I grew up in a Christian school and in some ways I've got Christian school and uh, kids would, you know, do the slant eyes thing at me or, you know, they had me like as a kid, you know, um, the little kid on Indiana Jones, you know, he's like, they're like, hey, Brad, do that Dr. Jones thing. Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, you know, do that. And I was like, oh, you know, I never realized like as a kid, I was like, oh, I mean, that was really racist. Like that was wrong. Yeah. Partially again, because Asian racism isn't anything that we've talked about for such a long time. Uh, but back to George Floyd and things like that, there's an article that came out in the news shortly after the, the whole situation went down, identifying one of the police officers as, as Asian. And I read it and uh, I texted my brother immediately and I said, bro, did you read this? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's coming for us now. You know, we're being indicted in this as much as uh, the officer who actually had the knee on George Floyd's neck, you know, and then I started reading other things and I saw an eight-year-old kid in Seattle where I grew up uh, was at Costco wearing a mask and he was called coronavirus and told to go back where he came from. An eight-year-old kid. And I saw that and I thought to myself, this shit is getting real. Yeah. Uh, it's been real, but now it's coming out. And I've watched the headlines ever since then. Every single day, I'll find, and I'm not looking for it. It, it just comes to me. Every single day, three to four news articles of a, an Asian person being harassed, being beaten, denied jobs, uh, you know, whatever else that you could think of, it, it's happening. And there has been no conversation about it, uh, especially amongst people in, in the church. And so for me, uh, it, it's this awakening that all of a sudden I I'm sneaking 38 years old and just now realize that like, I'm a person of color and racism affects me. And can I add like, like, so I'm an immigrant. So like even our stories, like Brad being biracial and how he like he grew like grew up in this, like was born in the States is like now a missionary to another country. But like as an immigrant, there's this idea that this is the cost you pay to be American. Mm -hmm. This is it is the racism. It's the hate It is the biases. It, this is what it means. And you suck it up because this is what you have to pay. So you should just be lucky that you're here. So like, because we let you here, like you need to deal with it. It's kind of a... And so that's why like go home is so hurtful and evil to say to Asian people, because we, we have like, we like, here's the thing. You'll begin to like, most likely start noticing a lot of Asian restaurants putting flags outside of American flags, outside of their restaurants and doubling down on saying like, we are American because we don't want to be hurt, that we deserve to be here too. And I think a lot of people are awakening to the reality that we have just absorbed trauma and racism because it was never our place to say anything. Like I, it, the beginning of last year, I was on a plane and I was hearing that like, I didn't know a ton about COVID-19, but I was hearing people were getting sick and I was traveling and I was like, like, if I'm sick, 
I don't want to get anybody else sick. That that just seem, doesn't seem like the nice thing to do. So I bought a mask and so many people gave me shit for it. But I'm like, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get other people sick. I was on a plane, a packed plane, and a man stood up and pointed at me and said, she has coronavirus to the entire plane. And then on another part of the flight, I was sitting by the window and I recall how painful it was. Like, And I had my mask on and I sat down and the two people sitting next to me, the woman in the middle sanitized everything between me and her, but nothing between her and the other white person. That, you know, like when you're sitting in the row and they come for trash and like, you know, you kind of help each other out because nobody wants to spill stuff all over other people. You just take it. They, they both refused to touch what I touched because they were already afraid of me. That happened in January of 2020. So if it was already that bad then, and then we had our former president saying China virus, Kung flu, and then Asian people being gaslit when we're like, that's not okay, because we knew this day was coming. We knew this reckoning was happening when we would be treated like this. My sister was verbally like harassed at a bank in Puyallup, Washington, and nobody said a damn thing to the man who called her a mother effer. Yeah. And accused her of cheating, but was super nice to all the other white people, you know, and I think we're seeing these stories happen, but no Asian is surprised, right? Like, because we knew this was coming because this has happened before the persecution and the aggression and the anger and the scapegoating of Asian people. It is a part of American history, yeah. but it's not the part that they care to teach people in school. So people are learning it now. And honestly, a lot of Asian people are learning our history here because maybe for so long, we are like, we want to be white or like we want to assimilate because we need to assimilate. And this is, and now we're waiting and we're like, if you can't respect my whole being, I don't need to be in this space. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's crazy. The lack of, uh, well, history that's taught in general, but I mean, I remember four years ago, I, w- I was at a wedding at uh, the Tacoma History Museum and for the first time learned about the Japanese internment camp that was the Puyallup Fair that I like went to almost every year and kind of having like this realization of like, oh my gosh, I like had fun there. And like, not that fairs aren't fun, but like, I didn't know that Washington, that my state that, you know, I'm from the the Puyallupish area, but like my area was like kind of like a part of this horrible thing. And like just the pictures and the images and the stories that I, I read just in that little, and honestly, the smallest exhibit of that museum was just heartbreaking that I, I had grown to, God, what I had done, 21 without even hearing that this happened not even 40 minutes from where I grew up. And I was just, I couldn't do it. Yeah, that's shocking that that wasn't... Yeah, my grandparents, or my grandmother was interned there at the Puyallup Fair. Um, and mm-hmm. so growing up, my dad would, my dad always wanted to go to the fair, but my grandma wouldn't let him. And he never understood why until later on he learned, you know, that that's what had happened. So the last time I was at the Puyallup Fair, which was a number of years ago, just because of where I am now and what I'm doing, but... Um, we, my brother and I literally stumbled across a, a tiny plaque memorial <laughs> on the fairgrounds that said, hey, by the way, you know, just 
this is in remembrance of the Japanese internment camp that had happened. And that year, it was like an anniversary, I think, of it happening. And so they actually had like areas where you can walk through and um, you can make uh, a straw mattress, which is what they, so you can basically like relive um, parts of what the internment camps had looked like and, and what it had been. Um, like creating a, a mattress and they had coloring sheets for the kids and things like that. And I just thought that was, you know, a, a nice little small homage. But like, we should keep it in mind, like even in that time, one of the most, if not most decorated battalion was made of Asian American, primarily Japanese, second, like born here, second generation they went and fought in the war and came back to visit their family in internment camps. Yeah. This is what the cost is to be Asian. That you go fight a war for a country that rounded up your family like cattle, put them in these camps because they posed a threat, and then you go and fight on their behalf. And so it's like, we are reaping the harvest of death that has been in our history. And the thing is, what is offensive is when people are like, what do you mean it's racism? What do you mean it's hard to be Asian? Like, what do you mean? You're the model minority. Some homeboy tried to tell me that white supremacy was not a part of this. And my husband had to step in and was like, because sometimes white people, y'all just want to hear from each other. When like an Asian person like, this is happening. And they're like, I can't hear you. And then a white person has to be like, hey, this is happening. They're like, oh my gosh, I just heard. Yeah. But like, here's the thing is that there's so much to unpack, but we are reaping the death that has been sown in the seeds in our history, in our communities. Like some Asian people, we're just waiting for the, like the Asian Candace Owens. Like how y'all popping up? I was going to ask about that. Have you guys encountered like, the Candace Owen type figures within like Asian communities? Um, I would say my, my dad has like literally no platform, thankfully, but he would be like that kind of a person if he did. Um, I, I love my dad, but he just, yeah, he's just kind of missed the mark on it. Here's the thing is that we're seeing this phenomenon, like not of our generation, but of our parents' generation where they don't want to talk about what's happening because they just absorbed that this is the cost, right? And so, and white proximity is a thing that the closer you are to whiteness, the more safe you are. So I am seeing this in my circle where people are like, no, you can't call it that because it isn't that. And I'm like, I just want to let you know, Mm -hmm. being close to white people doesn't mean you are safer. It just means you are asleep for longer, Like this idea that if we are like white people, the majority, the majority in power, we are safer. And that is idea that has been seeped into the consciousness of people like Brad and I's parents. Like I just got off the phone with a friend where she's having this same similar issue with her parents because they're not willing to see that this country that they gave their life for and they've invested in and they've sown into would, would treat them this way, or they can't speak about it. So that that's even a super multifaceted situation within itself. But it's like, yeah, white proximity is a lie. 
that is perpetuated to pit people of color against each other, but to also provide a false sense of safety that if you are like me, then maybe I will welcome you. Like it makes the white person less uncomfortable. Yeah, because they can say, look, I have one brown friend. And like, and that's where you have tokenism coming in. It's deeply frustrating, deeply evil. And it's blowing my mind that more churches and Christians are not condemning something that none of us should be wondering is sin and is actually the cause of division in our churches. Like I can talk all day about that shit. Like, let's go, but not really because I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In the midst of, you know, thinking about what we want to talk about and things like that this week, I just kind of made a couple of notes about some things and you know, one of the things that, that I was thinking about is um, what can the church do, um, since this is primarily, you know, in that kind of an area. And I think one of the things that churches need to do, and this is not just for, you know, AAPI people, but for all minorities, is churches need to recognize that racism exists within the church and white supremacy is a thing. And I think people, church, church people, and churches get freaked out by the term white supremacy because I think the image that they think of is like Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, like these supremacist groups. But the reality is that that's a symptom of white supremacy. But white supremacy, it, it's more simple than that. It, it's simply thinking that white is better than other. And it gets caught up the way that it, it manifests in different ways, it doesn't have to manifest in, in the clan or other things like that or, or other hate groups, um, but it manifests in looking at your community and seeing if your community is all white, you've got another problem. I'm not going there. Stop talking about the AG that way. Jeez. If you have any amount of diversity in your community and that diversity is not represented um, in leadership, in voice, in a seat at the mm-hmm. table, that's white supremacy. Yeah. yeah, it's gatekeeping actual ability for change by keeping people of color away from spaces and tables that make decisions. That is white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and then another way that it manifests, uh, I was on Reddit. Uh, I enjoy the Reddit. I was there the other day and uh, I don't remember at all how this came about, where the comment came from, but a band teacher was talking to another band teacher and he looks at the one looks at the other guy and says, hey, how did you get your band so good? You have so many Indian students and uh, Latinx students. How did your band get so good? And he looks, the, the one teacher looks at the other teacher and says, you know, I've come to realize that basically, you know, they're as good or better as any white student, you know? And so sometimes we get this mentality that like, if you look different than me, if you speak a different language than me, you're not as smart as me. We know two languages, okay, bros? Exactly. <laughs> like, you want to give shit to people who have a foreign accent? They learn two languages, and they are communicating in yours because you're not smart enough to communicate in theirs. So exactly. y'all need to check that lie. I am so spicy right now because I'm going to slap some ignorant folks. <laughs> Yeah. And, and let me tell you, you know, from from my experience, you know, I'm not real articulate in Japanese. I can, you know, create all kinds of social awkwardness and saying things in ways I'm not supposed to say it. 
but most of the time I could communicate what I need to communicate. And I might sound like a child. I might sound, I might not use the most elegant vocabulary because I'm not that great in Japanese, but let me freaking tell you, uh, it's hard work learning a second language. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you think every person in America needs to learn English, I challenge you, work as hard as you can to become fluent in a second language. And then go back and look at the person that you think is stupid because they don't speak English. And like, there's the struggle in that is like, where to unpack what just even Brad said, but it's like, I am so freaking tired of white majority churches asking people of color to form diversity boards, not pay them for their hard work and what they bring to the mother flipping table, ask them to volunteer their time, their gifts, everything, including bearing the space of revisiting trauma so that white people can learn a little bit. If you are going to pay someone to come in and talk to your church about something, you best be paying those boards of volunteers trying to teach your white church how to not be racist. Like what is going to continue to be the cost that people of color have to pay for white folks to learn a little bit? How much trauma do we have to continue to endure so that white people can wake up a little bit? Eight people died last Tuesday and people are still trying to talk about whether or not that is racism. And we are seeing racism in the church. We are seeing white supremacy in the church and churches are still remaining silent. So if anybody, all the tens people who want to be like, oh, what can I do? Go ask your church whether or not they spoke on it and why they didn't. Go look at your church staff. Is it diverse? Mm -hmm. Are there decision makers that are in positions of power and influence to actually make change? Because if the answer is not, that is gatekeeping. That is a form of bias. And y'all need to check why. Because I swear, like there is a reckoning that is coming where churches will have to decide, are we going to keep all the racists happy? By not talking about what is clearly and evidently wrong in the oppression of God's created beings, are we going to do that? Are we going to keep them happy? Because the rest of us folks, we are just going to leave and make new spaces. We don't need your white spaces making us feel like we are other. We don't need your white spaces to remind us that we have to be more white to be more accepted. And there's coming a generation where they're like, I'm not wondering if racism is wrong. So if you're not going to be talking about that, I don't know if I want to bring my children here. Biracial, multi-ethnic kids are actually projected to be what will be the majority. So churches, get your ass on board. Start examining your board of elders, your deacons, your elders, your leadership. If it is all white, you are still upholding a system meant to oppress people from getting to the table. And I'm going to build my own goddamn table because I am so tired of this shit happening. And pastors are like, I'm not racist because I didn't call somebody the N-word. I'm not racist because I didn't call you a chink. I'm not racist because I didn't do all this stuff. I'm like, I'm sorry, but if you are gatekeeping influence, money, power, leadership from people of color, hell yeah, you're upholding white supremacy. So no, you can't say you're not racist because it's not direct. The worst type of racist is a person who doesn't know they're racist. At least I respect the people who are like, I am racist. Good for you. Now we know where you're at. But it's all these other people who are like, I'm not racist. And like, if you can't, you can't see me right now, but my hands are up. Like I'm some sort of fool saying, well, I'm not a racist. 
Like those are the most dangerous people. Let me, let me challenge the church too, by asking this question, what do you have to lose? If you call out racism, if you make a statement uh, of, of any kind against racism or whatever else, what do you have to lose? I mean, you might upset some racist people. I mean, I don't care. I don't want to be around them anyways. You know what I mean? The Jesus tore down racism in his day. When he sat with a woman at the well, that was Jesus' statement saying, you know what? I don't care if this woman is Samaritan. She needs some living water. And I'm telling you, there are people all over America that need living water. And we're withholding it because we're not willing to make a statement. It's not just the minority community that's watching churches to see what's going on in churches. It's not just the minority community. There are white people who are upset about this as much as Ann and I are. They just don't have the emotion of the of being acted against. It that is honestly one of the reasons why the, uh, I guess I would have been this last Sunday. I I didn't want to watch uh, our church online, and we don't go to an AG, so uh, we can light up Foursquare a little bit. Is because historically my pastor has not been the best with talking about anything like this without the whole, basically there are fine people on both sides kind of idea and mentality. It's one of those things like I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a tiny town. It is, I mean, all the diversity comes from the college Uh, go Eagles, even though you lost in the first round of March madness and I'm upset, but that is where all of our diversity comes from. And there is, there's no diversity in my church. I remember the last time I played worship, I was up there with my guitar and I was like, I want to find who like my, uh, my brothers and sisters of the minority communities are no one. There was not one single non-white person or at least, uh, noticeably visually from, from upfront non-white person to, to find and talk to. And I remember just kind of being like, okay, my entire church leadership is white as white as they come. Uh, my entire congregation is white as they come. My entire town is white, pretty much as white as it comes. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, how, how do you do it now? Like how knowing what I know, seeing what I see, it feel, feels paralyzing with like moving forward. So uh, Brad and on, do you guys have anything? I don't know. I'm doing the very white thing by asking you guys for help. <laughs> but like Brad, how yeah how do you like talk talk about that or or for like the the very like obviously the area that i'm in is the way it is because of white supremacy and how do we break that mold brad do you want to go first you want me to because i get real spicy and no apologies or forgiven <gasps> yeah yeah go ahead uh you go first while i kind of consider uh, <laughs> mike's question a little bit more I think it is important for people to examine their circle of spiritual counsel and leadership. If everyone around you is white voices like yours, then you're not going to experience the the wealth of knowledge of other experiences and other perspectives. So I think like thinking like practically, if you're going to bring in the speaker, we generally like to think of people like us as options, like Expand your list. If you are a teacher and a leader, choose 
the path less traveled of using material and curriculum from people of color. Like I went to Northwest University. I'm looking back at every textbook that I read and what I developed a lot of my theology on. And it was written by white authors. And so you also have to recognize like that is an actual thing where we are not elevating different voices. So we continue to perpetuate theology and ideas from a white supremacist structure where more opportunities are given to people because they're white to write and to, to not work and to study theology and then to write books while other people work and don't have the same amount of time or um, resources. Um, things to consider is like, don't be quiet. If you see that that is what is happening, say something to your church leadership, ring the bell because it is exhausting to be the people of color who are like, Hey, this is happening. That is emotional toil that depletes every part of who we are. So like, if you know you're in a white space and you look at your leadership, you look at your church, think about how, like when there's hiring, Yeah. like ask if, if that's important. And so it's difficult because a lot of people feel paralyzed. Like, what can I do? You can get educated on the history. You can get educated on how your church hires people where they're finding their pool of candidates, you can get educated in all the different options of speakers you can bring in for camps, conferences, everything. Because I think what's going to happen, like, and this might make me sound so petty, but again, zero dog barks given, um, is I think more people of color are going to begin to look at churches and ministries and no take notice. Have you said anything to give me dignity? Have you said anything to acknowledge my pain? And honestly, if you haven't, you don't get to enjoy the fruit that the spirit of God has bore and grown in me in the valley. You don't get just to be on the mountaintop. If you will not give me dignity in my valley and acknowledge my pain and in my valley, you don't get to experience the fruit and people will go and create their own spaces. So I think churches need to recognize when you have an all white staff, when you bring in speakers, are you paying them less? You know, like, are you are you paying them less? Are you not taking care of their accommodations? Are you expecting them to pay out of pocket, knowing that structurally men get still get paid more, that they have more luxuries to cover their own cost? And here, I want to be very clear, white people are not the enemy, but you are an accomplice when you are silent. You are an accomplice to what the devil is doing to hurt people of color when you are unwilling to challenge and break down the very thing that is created to oppress your brothers and sisters. And I don't know about you, but if we're going to use the analogy of family, Mike, like the reality is if somebody was picking on my sister, you better bet I will throw down. I will say that is not okay. I will step in. We, as your Asian brothers and sisters, are being we are being hurt. We are actually being brutalized. We are being killed. We are being harmed. And you know what white brothers and sisters are saying to us? It's not racism. I'm, it's not worth it to mention on my pulpit. If I talk about justice, it will distract from the gospel. And I'm sure if any of you had a sibling, if somebody was picking on your sibling, you're not just going to stand there but we are seeing churches stand there and mark my words, you are an accomplice to the evil that the devil has doing 
is doing by saying nothing. And there will be a harvest for this evil. And it cannot continue to be paid by people of color. I don't know how to follow that up, but I'll, I'll give a couple thoughts of my own. Number one, the Assemblies of God is primarily a white organization. We've you know, kind of joked about that a couple of times. However, we are not so white that there is no one of color to put into positions of leadership. And so I personally make it my point, and this is not just, you know, in Assemblies of God things, but I've made it my point to vote. This is going to sound wrong, but I'm going to say it and I'm going to explain it. I no longer vote for old white men in anything. This is not just, um, you know, in Assemblies of God matters that we vote on, but I don't vote for old white men anymore because I want to see other representation, especially within our Assemblies of God circles. This is where I focus it the most. And uh, I, I vote for women. I've, uh, if there's a woman that qualifies for something, I will put her name on the docket. Uh, we, here, we vote on things you know, here in our field. And uh, our, we have what we call a field coordinator. And uh, he's a great guy. I really appreciate him. Um, at our last meeting, when we voted, or before we voted, you know, he was uh, talking about his wife and how much she contributes because he's white, she's Japanese. And he's, you know, he's talking about how incredible his wife is and how much work that she has done on behalf of the field. You know, we're going to take our vote and I look at it and I'm like, why, is, why does he hold the title if she's doing all the work? Mm-hmm. So I said, screw that. I'm not voting for him. Not because I don't like him, but his wife is doing all the work. She should be the one who has the title and the recognition for doing the work. So within the Assemblies of God, there's enough diversity to elect people of color to leadership positions. Uh, My district, it's all old white dudes that lead the district. Great men of God. I love them, but they're all white. They're all old white dudes. Yeah. Questions to ask, though, is I won't go to a conference if all the speakers are white, especially all white dudes. No, I will not attend a church anymore where the entire staff is white. Like, no, because like, just like Brad said, even though the majority of the AG is white, it is not so much so that there aren't other options. And so I think that's like, Mike, you asked like, what can we do? Yeah. Make a conscious effort. If there's some sort of conference, look at the speakers and also, also acknowledge how often people of color are placed into workshops instead of the main stage. That within itself is a problem or even executive teams. And I just want to say as a woman of color, that sucks. Yeah, it does. To to see that and to recognize that it's not because I don't have gifts and talents and authority and power to do the work. It's because I have a vagina. And that is problematic to a lot of people still. And we don't want to call the massacre in Atlanta misogyny. Like so many women resonated with the sexual sexualization that we saw justified there because it is in our culture. It is so embedded in our culture. And so like make a conscious effort. If an entire conference is white, don't give your money to that. Like, I'm sorry. Like, if an entire church is like all the leadership 
come on. Like, just like I, like I look at whether or not a church is egalitarian, if there is no women listed as pastors, heck no. And you sure as hell are not getting my tithe. I'm sorry. I'm going to go tithe into a significantly smaller church that at least has the dignity and decency to elevate voices of color, as well as elevate women into positions that make decisions. All right. So, uh, on, are you familiar with who uh, Eric Metaxas is? I'm on his Twitter right now. No, 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 no. What are you saying no to, Rebecca? I don't want to read any more. I, I read the first two lines and I don't want to read any more of the tweet. The cultural elites who go on about how conservatives and evangelicals demonize people different from them, which we certainly do not do. <laughs> okay, Eric. Uh, do it to conservatives and Christians all the time. They are giving themselves per, full permission to demonize us and do so so righteously. Who is this fool? What a load of bullshit. I love it. He punched a bicyclist. In the back of the head, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and his wife screamed out, Eric! Here's the thing, is that it's not the world that is saying this is happening. It is people in the church Like, should we even talk about the SBC and their long, sick history of covering up sexual abuse? Yeah. Like, it's not, it is people in the church be like, this is happening. It's not people in the world. They only found out because we kept saying, it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, on you read out the the Eric Metaxas part, but you didn't read out the thing that he was responding to. Should we have Brad do that so they both get to read it? Okay, so this is Ann, Ann Coulter's original tweet that Eric is r- responding to. It says, this is the dumbest sentence ever printed in the New York Times. The evangelical culture teaches women to hate their bodies as the source of temptation, and it teaches men to hate their minds. Um, I think Ann Coulter has uh, missed the point on something here. I think that she's missed what evangelical culture teaches our boys and women. Yeah, I, I think. I don't know. I think she I think she she nailed it. I don't know. I don't. Do you guys get taught to hate your minds? Because I I'd like the perception on this side is we are taught to hate our bodies and then bear the responsibility of men's of boys minds. But I've never like, I don't know. So I, I've had multiple conversations with Ben. Um about about this and my my favorite blatant example is that i can run around in uh swim trunks that's a four and a half to five inch inseam uh and i'm six four 36 inches of that is leg um so i'm wearing basically boxers but if you show your stomach as a woman you are a slut and whore and so uh i as a man have been taught do not even think about it. Oh, okay. It is it is just what it is. Men are horn dogs and women are existing. Is kind of what I was taught. Which can we just acknowledge like all this pride. Like men be walking around thinking every woman wants to jump you. You can calm down, okay? Cuz that is not true. That is literally a psychological thing. Men interpret neutral stimuli or neutral conversations between the opposite sex or the same sex as flirtatious, even if it's not. It, there's just so much to unpack there. And I 
I can't wrap my mind around. But you hate your mind, Brad. Yeah, I guess I guess that's my issue. Uh, but seriously, um, as an evangelical, or I, I don't identify as evangelical. I hate the word now. Refuse to to identify as it. But as a former evangelical, as a former evangelical, um, I feel like that it's it's a double edged sword. What Mike is saying is one hundred percent true. Yes, we are released from responsibility. But at the same time, we are also taught to hate our minds. Like the book, um, uh, The Every Man's Battle, I remember reading that and just walking away feeling so diminished and not to take away from women's pain because that that book was horrible on women as well. Um, But I I walked away from that just feeling totally diminished. Like, oh, this sucks. Being a man, you know, in this mind that God has given me is terrible and how it just automatically, you know, my eyes automatically go to uh, this and, you know, in ways that it shouldn't. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're both taught that we're, that it's woman's responsibility and that our minds suck. And I feel like it doesn't raise the bar for men to be awesome. It just uh, automatic, like automatically you have zero ownership. You have zero impulse control. You have zero ability that all these women want to jump you because you are such God's gift to men while your mind is still broken. You're a sinful being. I just, I struggle with that because I think, you know, I didn't get, I didn't become a Christian until I was in college. Um, but at least sexualization from the world, they didn't try to spiritualize it and cloak it in these other things where a sexualization of the female body and like entire being is cloaked in spiritualism. And um, it's so gross because it bleeds into all these other areas. It doesn't allow men to fully be who God has made them to be. It doesn't allow women to fully be. It's like stunting people on purpose for the sake of power. And that within itself. And it intentionally then stunts good relationships between men and women. Yeah. It has completely compromised that ability. Like I made the joke to Nate today because I met with another, um, with one of the other youth, local youth pastors and to have lunch. And whoa. it was like, hey, I'm, he- I'm heading to meet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We did, we did a pause here. Are you saying that you met with a man in a public space that wasn't your husband. I did. Congratulations. Good job on actually behaving like a decent human being. But I texted Nate and was like, hey, I'm meeting just to be obnoxious, saying like, hey, just so you know, I'm, you know, on my way to meet Jeremy, you know, thanks for letting me know that it's okay or what I I made some like snark because that's not, you know, what we have to do at all. You know, but it was just because because it's so ludicrous to us and yet we have pitted men and women against each other like to tie it back to then what even what we were talking about of what on you said about pitting people of color against each other then the way that we've talked about men and women in evangelical circles has pitted men and women against each other in a way like and we and we use the worst scenario to control like a fear right? Well, what if they have lunch together? The worst case scenario is sex between these people. And, and we're like, that is why they can't. No, no. Um, I think you're wrong. The, the worst, worst case would be dancing. Well, let's be real. Oh, 
AG. But you guys, like, you know what I mean, right? Like, you take these and you're like, this is why we don't do that. Because 60 years ago, there was a pastor and he went out to coffee with somebody in broad daylight. And then they touched pinkies. And that is why you don't have lunch or anything. And, and like, I think what the issue, like, it infuriates me because that is also a form of gatekeeping the gospel that when we use these rules to tell women and men, and I'm like, that's bullshit. Like that there's nothing other way of saying it, but when you are going to intentionally withhold opportunities from women to grow and to thrive and to develop their gifts because they're a woman, that is wrong. And you can't spiritualize it. You can't, like, that's just wrong that people are spiritualizing it because you have this trash by these people that, like, their Twitter we just read, where I'm like, are you serious? There's like, uh, there's two types of men that I've encountered in the church. Those who actually see me as a sister and those who see me as a sin. And I can tell you very clearly, I can tell you within meeting them exactly how they see me. And those who see me as a sister treat me as such in every way, including stepping in when people are being racist and sexist and everything. But those who treat me like a sin, that it is pride. Like it is pure pride and elevation of self to look at someone else and say, it's your fault. I am thinking these things. Like it's your fault that I am thinking inappropriate things that degrade like who God has made you to be. It is your fault. And we keep blaming women for like, how do you teach a child to grow up and be responsible if you do not teach the child to take responsibility for their whole selves? We have raised a bunch of children called boys because we haven't taught them to take responsibility and somehow they're leading churches. Y'all didn't even take responsibility for your sexual sin, but now you are leading churches. Yeah. Trash. Men are men are the only ones who are capable of of telling us what God's word set is, but also they are so fragile that they can't uh, meet at Starbucks to talk about vacation Bible school without accidentally raping the person that they met with. Exactly. I seriously, I never had any issues having platonic relationships with uh, women until I like got more involved in uh, Christian circles. And then it was like so separated that I was like, oh gosh, how do you talk to a girl without accidentally flirting with everyone? Also, because I was taught that uh, every girl wants to flirt with me because I'm a man. And I learned that from my Christian circles too. It like, it stunts the ability to like grow in discernment. Like, here's the thing. If you are a human being and you know that you struggle with whatever, own it and grow. Boom. Own it and grow. Bring it before the Lord. But when we are constantly shaming women and placing responsibility of someone else's like thoughts and sins, and we we give them that unnecessary burden, that person who is struggling will never be able to discern and grow because they've never owned it. They've never recognized that this is mine to deal with, with the Lord. And these are the same people. Like I, like I am so serious. Like this, these are the same people making decisions of who gets to preach, who gets to be on the board, who gets to be on staff. 
I have never been more sexualized than since I've become a Christian. That should say a lot about the world and the church. Something I've said a bunch of times, and it bears repeating a bunch of times because I don't think it's sunk in with people. If the only interactions you have with the opposite sex are sexualized, you will always sexualize the opposite sex. Right, right. If the only time talking to the opposite sex is with your spouse and it's a sexual relationship, every time you're alone with the opposite sex, your mind is going to automatically make it a sexual thing. So the solution is not to bar yourself in a castle and never meet with the opposite sex. It's to train your heart and your mind to interact with people as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And what is robbed from the body when like young, like when people can't talk to each other, right? Like what is robbed of discipleship and mentorship? Like, so my husband and I, he has like, not because there's ever been an issue, but he has access to every single thing that I can communicate on because we share the same password because it's just easier to remember. But like, he has access to everything. He is not concerned when I go out and like have coffee with a male coworker at the tech company that I work with. He never had a problem when I was working in a church. And I think what is robbed is the opportunity like for myself as an older married mother is to talk to young men who are like, one day I want to get married. And I'm like, okay, let me give you some perspective of things that you should probably get in line from a female perspective that is not your mother. Just like my husband can talk or any of you, Caleb, Mike, Brad, that if somebody is like, hey, like, like whatever circumstance, I feel like so much is robbed and we are allowing it to be robbed. We are allowing it to be stunted because we keep sexualizing things that don't need to be sexual. We are sexualizing the fact that we are co-laborers. And if all of our eyes are on the kingdom, no one's eyes is on your crotch. I just want to slap some people because I'm like, so how prideful of you to think that I want your goodies. Like, please. Okay. Like, ooh. But for some reason. Can I quote you on that? Ew. Like, that's so true, though, right? If we remove the fact that if we are raising disciples to pursue Christ and to do kingdom work, you should not be looking at your sister in Christ and be like, she wants this. She don't. She wants the kingdom. She wants, like, she wants to do the work with her creator. And so I just, so much is robbed. So much is stunted. No one, None of us should be shocked that the, that the killer in Atlanta was able to do what he did in the culture that we have built. Mm-hmm. Kingdom over crotch, guys. I'm just saying it could be, it is the new modest is hottest. I'm actually, I'm going to hop off right now because I got to get ready for a staff thing. <gasps> All right. Bye, Mike. Bye. It was so great talking to y'all. Toodles. Oh, we're just going to hit all the hot topics here. You can't not talk about it. I know. In a, a, a podcast that talks about the news of the week, when there's a second mass shooting in less than a week, another 10 people are dead. Our fellow guy, he's an activist in the uh, African-American community, in the Black community. And uh, he said, 
concerning this, he says, guess what, guys? America is back. We've got mass shootings and we've got white people being arrested as opposed to being killed for uh, innocuous things. This killer was peacefully detained, taken into custody to be questioned, while black people and people of color are getting beaten up and, and uh, next knelt on for innocuous, you know, having your blinking, your blinker on in your car, you know. Yeah, yeah, America's back, full force, 2021. And it, it should grieve us deeply as the church that this is happening and there is no, there is no sorrow and lament. There is, there is conversation about things that shouldn't matter to those who are grieving the loss of their loved ones. Like two mass shootings also revealed to us, I, I like from my perspective, that we have essentially raised a culture and a group of people that don't know how to process trauma and to grieve and to feel sorrow because these things that we are seeing is simply the fruit of what has been sown. And so when you have these things, they come from somewhere and we have to be able to examine where. And I think the way people are behaving in the pandemic right now is that they've never learned how to truly cope with loss, with isolation, with with this type of hardship, uh, with trauma. If you don't know how to process it, yeah, this this stuff is happening and it should break our hearts. Absolutely. That this is happening. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that it's just that people don't know how to process trauma though. Mm-hmm. I think that it's also that we've not created spaces for people to process trauma. Yeah, that's good. Agree. I, I think that it's a both is yes. There's people who aren't, can't process trauma. But also there's people who know darn well how to process trauma, but everything keeps on happening. I think too, there's an aspect of, there's the delayed trauma of two of, maybe when we're talking, people don't know how to process it or people, it's like, I almost died having my first daughter. I didn't process how traumatic my, her birth and my recovery. And like, we put my, we put my best friend's dog down when she was two months old, like, I couldn't grieve that I was sending my baby to daycare because I was killing my dog on the same day. Like I, and, and so it wasn't until, I mean, I'm still kind of unpacking some of that now with my second kiss. So there's, there's delayed um, being able to deal with it or, um, and we just don't recognize it like until it rears its head in a way. And, and so we, we, we also even haven't really taught people how to recognize trauma or what could be traumatic in their lives. Again, kind of going back to the Asian American, you know, thing, I, a lot of the racism that I've experienced, and a lot of it has happened inside churches, um, you know, people just saying blatantly racist things to me or about me. And I didn't even realize it. I didn't even process it as racist until, you know, the last year or so. You know, I've shared some of the experiences in some of the groups that I'm a part of. I remember where I share things where I don't. I just share things. You know, and it's just like now that I'm, I'm starting to process and realize like, yeah, there's this has been traumatic for me. But the other thing that I, I want to comment too on this is I don't know how every church in America operates, obviously, but 
my church that I grew up in, my pastor every week would just kind of mention the hottest news stories and, uh, you know, as prayer requests, you know, hey, we need to pray for this situation, you know, is this happening? Uh, maybe other churches do that, but, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be some churches where pastor stands up and says, you know, we've had this uh, horrific shooting in Boulder, Colorado. You know, we need to pray for the families, pray for the, for the victims, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But yet they're not willing to um, talk about the racism that's happening as well. Or they're going to be quick to point out that the shooter in Boulder is Middle Eastern but not address the fact that the shooter in Atlanta was white. Or, so I don't really care that much that the shooter in Atlanta was white, to be honest. That is not, he identified as a Christian and that identity that we had a Christian who would commit violence against women and against people of color. Like, I don't give a damn what color the shooter was in Atlanta, but he was a brother in Christ that he was brought up and in his mind, he thought that that was the appropriate way to deal with sin. Like, let's be real here. I don't care that he was white and that those women were Asian. Not that I don't care that Asians are getting violence, but my biggest concern with that situation specifically is that our culture in the church is such a way that we have young men who think the appropriate thing to do is to kill women to deal with their sexual addiction. Yeah. Like, and, and, and the violence in the Asian and Pacific Island community is real. And that's part of it. And that adds to that trauma. But I, I think that that whole thing, like, sure, if we brought race completely out of it, that's still a, absolutely such a huge problem that we need to say this was one of us that did that. And we're ready, we're so fast on this one, because I've seen it, we're so fast on this one to say, see, that wasn't one of us. But we're ready to say that wasn't one of us, but when it was one of us, we weren't ready to say this is us that caused this. Absolutely, I think we should, like, it's been really hard to grieve and feel deeply because if we're not going to call out the problems in our own house, mm -hmm. like who are we to go into the world, right? Like the fact that he identified as a Christian and this was like, you're right, Caleb, like the, his thought was, I'm just going to go kill them. I'm going to go eliminate them. He is not like, here's the scary thing. He is not the only person raised in our home, the church that thinks this way yeah that's scary yeah and the, and yet what it's been blamed on it then jumps to a mental illness issue which is harmful for people who struggle like i asked the question why is it why is it clear that it's mental illness but it's not clear that it's racism right in right. particular in the in the situation in atlanta and one of the responses to me was saying wait you think that someone can be mentally well or stable or some i forget how he phrased it um and go kill people like actually if you look uh, look through history plenty of people who committed atrocities were very mentally stable it's not a, like or how what we define as mentally like let's not that's just that's someone taking a logical progression to an evil place right like that's let's not then villainize those who have mental illness or have a like what how with that and, and and are so then unwilling 
like on said to examine our own issues and our own um, how our culture has created a space where, where they think this is okay. Oh, baby's waking up. Yeah. I have lots of people that I'm close with that identify as being sexual addicts and none of them are violent. None of them have ever harmed a, a woman physically and none of them have any ideas of doing so, you know, and so it perpetuates this fear. Like you're saying, it's, it's ableist. It perpetuates the fear of people who, uh, the fear of the wrong people, I guess. Yeah. I think I struggle with the idea that like, I hated that they blamed it on mental illness because that is generally the excuse used to kind of like a get out of free. Well, that and having a bad day. Yeah. For a lot of like killers, um, if they're, if they're white, generally it sets the conversation back for mental health in the church. You know, something that I say is you can't go out into the world if you're not first willing to do the work in your heart and in your home. And I think the church has failed to see that we are, we are losing effectiveness in the world because we are unwilling to look at our heart and our home, our heart being ourselves, our home being our churches. No one is robbing us of this. No one is canceling us. We done did it ourselves. And to go back to the Boulder situation, it's a tragedy. We need to grieve with those who are grieving. But what I've also seen is I've seen that response and I've, I've made that response in groups and things. But also I've seen people ready to blame the fact that he's a Muslim. People who are ready to, the same people who are like, look, this is a Muslim who did this. And some of the people, I'm not going to name any names, but they're ready to point out that this was a Muslim. But to point to Atlanta and say, this was a Christian and we need to address it. No, 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 no. We're not going to go there because he wasn't a real Christian. And that's some bullshit right there. That's some bullshit right there. Can I also point out that um, Asian community also does include a majority, if not all of the Muslim countries. India is also, you know, a part of Asia. Uh, so... Yeah, but we don't we don't count you guys as we don't count them as Asian. They're Middle Eastern. It's a whole different set of racism. Well, yeah, that's that's what it is. It's a different set of racism. I mean, yeah, it is weird how that works. Where, yeah. Anyway, but, yeah, yeah. My, right. Sorry, like, my geography teacher brain is going. Never mind. Moving on. Biggest Muslim country, Indonesia. Yeah, it doesn't fit our narrative of Arabs or Muslims, and we need to bomb them. So we just don't talk about that. Yeah. It, what it really feels like is people are waking up and it's costing lives. People are waking up and it's costing great evil. And, you know, like in the um, in Ezekiel, where he like has the experience of the Valley of the Dry Bones and they're all sun bleached white. And he has Ezekiel has this interaction with God. And I think sometimes we 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 zip forward to. Uh, when the breath of God filled the bodies and they became the army of the Lord. I think a lot of people are simply just the warm bodies without the spirit. Mm -hmm. They are, they are put to, they are not dead, but they surely are not living. And I think that the church is a lot of warm bodies without power and authority and the spirit of God to guide us and direct us. 
So the things that we are seeing and we are not grieving and we are not dealing with and we are not healing from, this is because warm bodies, people who are just sleeping, people like who are refusing to wake up because they're too comfortable in their sleep. And the thing is that to get shit done, you got to wake up and there is a time for rest. But like, I have, I've always, I like, I hated when people prayed for end times because there's just too many people I know and love who don't know Jesus. And I like, I'm not ready for that. I've never felt so close to what it feels like as the end times. Like I've never, like, I like, I generally try to avoid that, but like, there is such an immense darkness in the church. I'm not even saying in the world, there's immense evil in churches from the pulpit, from places of leadership that are not being addressed. And I think that is scary. That is scary, scary. And they're all sleeping. They're all sleeping. They are all warm bodies. They are not filled. And they, but I should really say we, because we want to take ownership in the church. Um, but it, it, is, it is devastating. And I feel like we hold that tension of immense sorrow that this is the state. But then I hope that we also hold hope that this, this, this is a refining that we like, just because I sit in a garage, that doesn't make me a car. I think a lot of people are recognizing just because you sit in a church doesn't actually make you a Christian. Right. It is the fruit of your life that is that is evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of us are like, check your fruit. <laughs> check that fruit. I don't know. There's a deep sorrow in me for what is happening, what is happening to my community, but what is happening in like the Christian community. For sure. I would like to kind of end on a bit of a more positive note if you guys are okay with that, but um, Ann and I have been sending emails out to people in leadership, just trying to raise awareness of what's going on. Many of the emails are uh, not responded to or not, you were not getting response that we're hoping to gain. However, I do want to say that uh, I sent an email to um, uh, a person higher up in the AGWM because I've experienced racism on the uh, while I'm out sharing at churches and I shared specific instances with him. And he wrote back and he said, um, gave me a very gracious response and said, I'm sorry that this has happened to you. Um, be sure to uh, keep track of, you know, when you're going on itineration next, keep track of any instances that happen. Let me know. I will address it head on. So I was like, yay. And then number two, um, and this was the absolute, gold for me. President uh, Castleberry up at Northwest University yes. um, sent out a powerful statement um, saying how he stands with the Asian community. And I was very excited. I, I told my wife and I said, basically, like, I mean, this is Joe, you know, he's not a part of the, the Springfield, you know, leadership team, but he is high up, you know, in the assemblies of God, you know, about as high as you can get without being in Springfield. And uh, so I, I really admire him for that. I sent him an email to say thank you for um, sharing the statement. He wrote back and we're going to have lunch together at some point when we're back in the States. So while, you know, we're decrying the silence of most people, there are people that are listening. There are people who are taking note and uh, we appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I think we'll just, we'll just keep at it. Uh, until until we see what needs to happen happen.
Joe Castleberry's a freaking homeboy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I had I commend Joe Castleberry for his very strong statement. Also, we should know Joe Castleberry opened a fund called the George Floyd Fund when it happened last year to scholarship African-American students. Um, and I'm sure he got crap for that. And Joe helped organize a multi-ethnic gathering in Seattle as an act of solidarity and lament. And so I agree with Brad, people are listening. And I think at, at some point, we're not going to look to these higher ups to do stuff. We are going to do stuff. We're not going to look for them to give us permission to say what it is because we're just going to say what it is. I've been very disappointed by not getting a response from the superintendent when I emailed him weeks ago. And Brad, correct me if I'm wrong, neither did you. Correct. I, I have not heard back from him as well. And I am just of the school of thought where I'm like, if you don't, if you will not give me dignity and humanity and address the things that oppress me, I have zero desires to be in your space because your space is not for me. And I will go and build other spaces. And I think more people are empowered to do that because we are coming from a heavily permissions-based culture, church culture, to now like a spirit-filled, like, we know what is wrong. We know what is right. You're not going to gaslight us on basic, decent humanity. And we're just going to go do other spaces. And I think the cost of that, like I think about the cost of it for myself is, I might just not be invited to speak in a lot of spaces, but at least I will be empowered to say no, because you couldn't even condemn racism that harms my community. You know, I've, I've been looking for a ministry position, a full-time ministry position for over a year now. And I've turned down several because they have requested that if I were to go on staff with them, that I would not speak up on social justice issues. And that's part of the gospel. Yeah. Part of the gospel is to be the hands and feet of Jesus working for justice in the world, especially in a representative democracy like ours. Like that's part of the Christian life. And and so, you know, I'm still looking for a church because I would rather not have a seat at the table than have my seat at the table cost me my voice. Yeah. I- we have a weird way of thinking about things like a friend of mine. He's actually my friend's dad. I'm friends with him on Facebook. And uh, he said, you know, I try not to weigh in on political issues and things like that. But, you know, I'm watching this movie. Evidently, it was um, I never heard of it, but it was a movie about racism, you know, whatever else. And you know, he's like saying that he's seeing issues in our world today. I'm like, bro, this is not politics. This is sin racism is a sin it's not politics even the ag's weakest position on things says that racism is sin sweet jesus we are willing to really throw down on people for drinking but zero throw down for sexism and racism right but like if we even say that racism is sin like the weakest possible way that you could have a statement after george floyd like even at that. It's wrong. We know that. How are you holding people accountable to upholding these structures that is upholding sin? I just, 
Oh, y'all, I'm surprised I didn't do more dog-like barks up in this. <laughs> I'm I'm actually impressed. Like, this is not even close to the most um, editing out that I'm going to have to do versus sometimes when Matt goes off. Can I say that I am very encouraged? Like, I'm very encouraged that we are having this conversation, and it feels like a weird space. I don't want to thank you because people don't need to be thanked for doing being baseline decent. We should be, like... And I feel like I'm getting that response from a lot of people. Like, be like, don't thank me. This is just what is right. And I, so, but I am very encouraged that even in the midst of like seeing some pretty terrible stuff come out of Christianity and the church, I'm very encouraged that people are waking up. I'm very encouraged that we are, we are building something very different for our children. Thank you for listening to the Barely Saved Podcast. Make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes, links, and show notes at barelysavepodcast.com. Bye. Goodbye.